0: You're listening to Sue's Little Black Book, part of the Redshift Community Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by Creative Connecting in Cheshire. Hello, I'm Sue France, and each episode, I will be introducing you to the inspiring and motivational entrepreneurs from my Little Black Book. I'm talking to my friend and mentor, Susie Mathis. I first met Susie in 2001. My daughter had just passed away and I wanted to do something else. I wanted a new interest. So I got in touch with Susie and I went to work for the Kirstie Appeal, which was based in Altrincham. I walked in and noticed on the wall on the left, a giant picture of Dusty Springfield. And on the other side, a big picture of Princess Margaret lighting a cigarette for Susie. So I knew this was the start of a new adventure for me. And I was entering a new world.
1: So do you think that's a fair description of your world, Susie? I think, yeah, it certainly sounds really weird to hear you talk about those days. And I can't believe it was 2001. That's incredible. 19 years ago, Sue. I know. Unbelievable.
0: Well, you've become a great friend since then and a mentor. And we decided we needed more than one podcast, didn't we? (laughs) So we're going to talk about the first part of your life now. And in the second one, we'll talk about how you became my mentor.
1: But first of all, would you like to introduce yourself and tell the audience a bit about yourself? Yes, of course. And also just to say it's so lovely to be talking to you today in Little Black Book. Thank you. Well, the thing is, my sort of showbiz life only really happened because I went to a stage school. So it's important to say that I had a really difficult upbringing. My family split when I was eight years of age. And due to a most wonderful lady and a coincidence beyond belief that this lady just happened to be driving 30 miles away from where she lived, going for a drink in a country pub. She happened to see this tiny girl, which was me, in the corner of one of the tap rooms, actually having a fit. And because of that, she actually paid for my school fees. And I went to her wonderful school, which is called the Denise Pitt-Draffen School of Dancing and Dramatic Art. And I feel really privileged when I look back on those days, because if it hadn't been for Betty Pitraffin, I I wouldn't be where I am now. And I wouldn't have had all the wonderful experiences that I've had throughout my years. From the school, when I arrived there, I was met by a lady called Margaret White, and she was dating Elvis Presley. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) So you can imagine. That was such a shock. I was, you talk about going into a different world, Sue. I certainly went into a different world. And she was actually in the Bluebell Girls at the time, but she actually had gone to the school and she came to pick me up from the station in Northampton. And I started a journey, which was just absolutely fantastic. I learned to act and sing and dance, ballet tap, national Greek character, modern musical and ballroom. From there, really, I learned so many things about the world of entertainment. And I met so many people throughout those years at school. And the obvious thing was that you always went for auditions. And the first audition I went for was to do the very first advert for Thornton's Special Toffee. I remember going for that advert. Never heard of Thornton's Special Toffee. I had to wear a very grown-up Burberry Mac and a scarf at a jaunty angle. And I had to walk up to the camera and say, why do they call it special? And that was the first sort of thing I ever did towards a screen But it was very, very exciting. And that was, it really sort of got me going. This is it. Show business is what I want to be involved with. And I certainly did. I went for audition after audition. And I was so lucky in those early days to get so many. My very first job was at the Northampton Repertory Theatre. And it was in Salad Days, followed by The Boyfriend and followed by The Pantomime Cinderella. And I went on license at the age of 13. But I never really went back to school because I was then into different musicals. Stop the World, meeting Anthony Newley, and so many shows. And then I went to Scotland for three years in two brilliant shows. One was called A Love for Jamie, where I understudied Lenny the Lion. (laughs) And lots of people won't even remember Lenny the Lion. But for me, I remember Lenny the Lion. (laughs) And I had to, if, if, if Terry was off, Terry Hall, obviously he was off. That was one part. And then the Lion was off. That's two parts. So I had to wear a skin. If he was off and go on as Lenny the Lion. I never knew this. <laughs> <You> <laughs> I never, never told again. anyone this. <laughs> no, I, I don't think it's really been very <laughs> been really pronounced in my life, but thinking back to those early days, that was big deal, you know. It was to go on as Lenny the Lion and say, Oh, don't embarrass me, as he used to say. Anyway, the shows continued, the five past eight show at the King's Theatre in Edinburgh and the Glasgow Alhambra, which is no longer there, very sadly. I was in several shows there with Ricky Fulton, did my first TV called A Love for Josie with Ricky Fulton and Jack Mulroy. At the end of the shows, I used to get really, really disappointed and sad because you just got a potted plant and an address to send a a card at Christmas. And that was the end of the meeting of all those people that you worked alongside with for months at a time. And I realised that the theatre really wasn't going to be the sort of profession that I could stay in, I needed to have some people around me that became mm-hmm. sort of part of a family. I remember this with
0: my daughter when she used to go in rep and she'd be so close to some people for a few months, they'd tour the country. Then they wouldn't see each other again, but they'd all bonded so much. I can imagine how you felt then.
1: Yeah, I think the, my problem was that the sort of rejection at an early age has affected me throughout my entire life. And at the end of those wonderful shows where, as you say, exactly the same with your lovely daughter, is it was heartbreaking to just sort of think you just got a potted plant. You stood on the stage together at the end of it, you know, after the walk down. And then you just said goodbye until the next show. And then all it did, it was repeated itself. Mm-hmm. And I you know, this isn't the life for me. So I never, ever obviously lost touch with Betty Pickdraffan. And she said, well, why don't you come back to the school and we'll get an act together and, you know, join together with a couple of the girls that you were friends with. And we can see where it goes from there. So it's exactly what I did. I went back to the school and Pauline Bennett and Sue Marshall were my two friends. And we joined together with Betty's help and we rehearsed and rehearsed. And we became, first of all, the Dance Trends Incorporated. And Dance Trends Incorporated, Betty wanted to get us out on the road working. So we went to the City Varieties in Leeds. That was our first job. And Betty thought it was the musical, you know, like the City of Writers musical, which was always on television yes. you know, once every week. But actually it was a strip joint. And so, <laughs> I mean, we, we this boarding school that I went to was a really very, very posh boarding school. I and mean, they didn't like the fact I had earrings at, as a, a young age. And you certainly, if you laughed, you were called a gutter snipe. So she had no idea, Betty, that this uh, City of Writers was a strip joint. But when we arrived... <laughs> The top of the bill, without a word of a lie, each week was a stripper. And if the stripper was called Charmaine, we'd be called the Charmaineettes. And if it was Titty Valari, we were the Titty Valariettes. And we opened the show, we did a, a song in the middle and a song at the end. But we weren't at all a sexy trio of singer-dancers. We were very much in character. We did things like working in a coal mine and the yellow submarine and boots were made for walking and things like that. And over the 18 months that transpired, we then became the top of the bill and the stripper was way, way down the bill. Sometimes when we read books about the days in the past, you can't believe certain things really happened. But I'm telling you for sure, there were actually people in the audience at the City of Varieties and they would be shelling the peas for their tea while they were sat in the audience. It was unbelievable. I can't believe that. It was unbelievable. I mean, I couldn't really take it in at all, but that was what went on. But we became top of the bill, as I say. We changed our name to the Dolly set. And we did things like Working Men's Clubs. The very first one was the Heckman White Comrades. We worked with lovely people like beautiful Bobby and Tommy, the Cannon and Balls. Sadly, we've lost our Bobby now. And the Grumbleweeds and fabulous, great artists that did so well in the sort of Working Men Clubs before they came famous. And that's how we did our grounding and we learned about how on earth we were going to project ourselves as singers and dancers and try to make a difference. And one day, Pete Stringfellow came to see us and we just actually finished. We just done the second recording after winning Opportunity Knox. So we were we were on the way, we felt, but we we'd only just started really learning the trade. But he came to see us and said, look, they're looking for three girls in London. There's a great set of writers. They've got some great songs and they're auditioning. There's 40 sets of three girls, but you need to go. So he said, I'm going to pick you up tomorrow morning and we'll go for the audition. We were living in Leeds in a caravan. I mean, we had no money. We earned £19 a week between us. I made all the costumes, you know, just lay on the floor and sort of teared around it and sewed it together. I mean, we were raw. We didn't feel we were quite ready to go to London and suddenly perform as a pop singer. There hadn't been any British pop singers, we were scared. So we didn't go that first day. And I remember him ringing me up and saying, well, do you want to be bleep bleep stars or don't you? Anyway, the next day we went. We didn't even own a pair of tights between us. And as we got down towards London on the Fulham Road, we stopped and went into John Lewis and we bought three pairs of tights, pretty poly tights. There were four and 11 each four shillings and 11 pence. And we dressed, got our tights on in the car. We've learned the harmonies to falling in and out of love and a couple of other little songs to sing at this audition. And then we arrived at Pi Studios. We went in, we sang a couple of songs. We nearly drowned them out because we weren't used to good microphones at all. But we knew by their faces that we got it. We knew immediately. So out of the 40 sets of girls, we got that job.
0: You were and, one of the first girl bands, weren't you, really? I can only remember the Beverly Sisters before
1: you. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, they weren't really a pop group, were they? No, but, no. You know, they would appear with Max Bygraves and Lovely Dares and on shows like that, but they didn't have pop songs out. No. They certainly weren't in that industry. And there was the Kay Sisters and the Vernon Girls, who were probably the most like pop stars, but they did more backing vocals for people, yeah. Joe Brown and people. So um, we drove back to Leeds that night, so excited. And in fact, all the shows were cancelled, all the future shows were cancelled. We felt terrible saying goodbye to everybody, because here I was again saying goodbye to people. But we did. And we moved into a hotel in London, the Winton Hotel, and we became the Paper Dolls. (laughs) And it was amazing. We just literally lived in that hotel while, we, while everybody arranged what sort of clothes we would wear, making the record itself, making the first record something here in my heart, and styling us and taking us to Elizabeth Arden, The Red Door, and getting our makeup done. It was a very, very exciting days. It really, really was. When the record came out, it was instantly being played. I remember Tony Blackburn was the first play on Radio 1. That was the first time I'd ever heard myself, obviously, on Radio 1. It was just the most exciting thing in the world. And from there, you know, within it seemed like a couple of weeks, it had taken about five months. And, of course, all of that five months, we had no money. I mean, although people were buying us all these things, we had to pay it all back. And we started to be told, well, I think we've got Top of the Pops. And it's a huge story about getting Top of the Pops, which I think was too long to go into. But it was basically a case of the producer tried it on with me one night and I literally hurt him quite badly, actually. And the next morning I said to the girls, well, that's it now. We're never going to get Top of the Pops. But we did. We got a phone call and we were on that week. And that was the beginning, really, of a, a phenomenal adventure. Because to be in the pop world in the 60s, really, I mean, you couldn't have asked for a better decade. It was such an exciting change of music. And albeit the end of the 60s, it was 1968, February the 14th, the record was released and it was a hit by April. It was just the most exciting time because doing Top of the Pops, you were working with people like Tom Jones, The Beatles. First time we did it, we did it with Cliff Richard. Congratulations, he sang The Move. Fabulous, Fire Brigade, you know, great songs, great music. We were the first girls, so suddenly everybody really wanted us to succeed and therefore put us on their TV programmes. Within minutes, we were doing things like the Morecambe and Wise show, the Two Ronnies, Alan Freeman, Simon D. Fabulous, fabulous memories, great TVs. We narrated the very first Armchair Theatre with Alfred Lynch, yeah, the Ballad of the Artificial Mash. Are you able to get any footage of things like Morgan Wise? Well, there aren't any copies of Top of the Pops, not one. <gasps> Nobody I don't have any of them. I did actually end up presenting Top of the Pops a little bit later in my life. Yeah. And I do have those copies, but I don't have any copies of the paper dolls. There are copies of the paper dolls that, you know, you can find on Google and YouTube and stuff but they aren't Top of the Pops copies. No. Classic ones to see if anybody of interest because you're raw laughing at the size. (laughs) Going backwards on a train in Austria. I mean, health and safety would never allow it these days. What a shame. What a shame (laughs) because nowadays everything's kept, isn't it? Everyone has records of everything. Lots of the Morecambe and Wise tapes were found quite recently in obscure Eastern European countries somewhere. And I got so excited and I ordered them. I ordered every copy. You can see the listing that we're on the listing there for the third one in 1969, the third Morecambe and Wise series. And unfortunately, every one has been found except for two copies, two episodes rather, and one of those is ours.
0: That's typical, isn't it? I've seen you perform as the Paper Dolls, haven't I? You did a reunion for the Kirsty Appeal. <laughs> that was wonderful. In fact, you came to rehearse. I was involved with the hotel in Bradford, and That's you came right. over, didn't you? You did That's the rehearsals right. at the hotel. That's right. Oh, Sue, so
1: we've done lots of bits and things together over yes. the years. Yeah. yeah. Oh God, yeah. I mean, but Janet lived there. You see, of course, the original Paper Dolls were only really together for several. In fact, the first one left after about 18 months of the success, because as usual, hearing today about Jesse on Little Mix, you know, yes, with girl, sad. yeah, with girl groups, it often happens, you know, they split up. In our case, it was certainly because of men, you know, they met a guy and wanted to settle down with guys. And so they left the group and I carried on, you know, replacing those girls because we toured south africa we toured europe we did the fabulous 60s tours with scott walker who was wonderful i watched him every night he had such charisma he made me tingle just watching him he was so
0: handsome wasn't he oh, Gorgeous.
1: <laughs> he was divine very shy very very shy indeed got a lovely paper clipping saying. Shh, not a word to Tiger because <laughs> he never spoke very much. And of course, my name was Tiger in the Paper Dolls, but he was wonderful. But we too with all those great bands, Herman's Hermits, Amen Corner, Love Affair, the Casuals, the Searchers. And the Searchers, I'm still one of my oldest friends. I'm still always in touch with Frank from the Searchers. And they, of course, have now split up. And when I look back on all those days, what's so scary is how many of those people are no longer with us.
0: I know. Every week you hear of someone going, don't you? So sad. Can you tell me, just out of curiosity, because I never asked you before, what were you doing with Princess Margaret in that picture?
1: Well, the famous, wonderful picture of which I'm so proud, that of course happened in much later life. I won a Sony Radio Award for Personality of the Year. That was for Piccadilly Radio. And I went to London to, I think it was the Dorchester. It was one of those wonderful hotels anyway. And the guest of honour was Princess Margaret. I smoked in those days. And of course, we all know Princess Margaret smoked. And she was obviously at the top table. I was just below her with lots of people. And she had a cigarette in between courses, which was just, that's what happened in those days. It's hard to believe it now, isn't it? But after the show was over and we all received our awards, She asked for a few of us to go meet her, Timmy Mallett myself. There was only a few of us and we all went back to meet her in this special room with the press. The press were all there. And I said to her, oh, I'm glad it was you that was here so I could have a fag. (laughs) And And she said, oh, would you like one? I said, oh, yes, I'd love one. She said, they're American. I said, oh, I don't care which country they're from. She went into her little handbag and she got the cigarette out and she gave it to me. And I took the cigarette and I thought, right, OK. I said, well, have you got a light? <laughs> so she got her lighter out and she lit my cigarette. I'm glad and- someone took a photo of that. That's a classic. <laughs> well, the world took a photo of that. That was in the papers in Australia. I mean, it was front page of every paper. It was extraordinary. Because apparently, you know, a royal lighting a minion's fag was very much an unusual happening, you know. Yeah, that was very special. I have fabulous memories of all those days. Obviously, the highlights are the things that stand out, aren't they? You know, it's just so fantastic to have experienced lots of things. And just a great, great shame that girl acts don't stay the longevity. Because... Although I'd replaced the girls and actually had a fabulous act for many, many years and done some fantastic tours abroad with the new girls, we never really found success again as in recordings. So that was a great, great shame. But we did have a very successful cabaret act and we never, ever was out of work ever. We did you know things like the Bailey organization, which had 14 nightclubs and you'd finish one set and you'd start again. So we were successful. But then, of course, the last girl went to leave to get married. And I just thought, I can't do it again. I just can't start again. Because you can't just replace a girl that you've worked with for years. And it all work because it just doesn't. So I went solo for a while. Hated it. Loathed it. But I went into pantomime starring as pretty Polly Perkins. (laughs) 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 At the Stockport Davenport Theatre with the Grumbleweeds. It was fantastic to be in the pantomime because there were people around me. But as far as going on stage on my own, you know, if you're going well, if you're doing well and the audience is loving you, that's fantastic. But when you come off, you're on your own. There's no one to share it with. And even worse, if you go on stage and you're not going down well and you come off and you're on your own, you're just totally distraught. So I knew being a solo artist was not going to be for me.
0: You had to move on to something where you were part of a team again, didn't you? Like Piccadilly Radio?
1: Without any doubt, I had to. I had to sort of move on to the next stage of my life. And it was because I was in the pantomime with the Grumbleweeds that the manager, Stuart Littlewood, just said to me one day, well, why don't you do radio? And I said, I've I've only ever listened to the radio. I've never even thought about it. He said, well, I'll arrange for you to go and meet the programme controller, Colin Walters. And he did. And he's gone as well. He's died as well. It's like, oh, my God, you look back at your peers. It's just awful. I went to meet him. And he was about seven foot. He was so tall and I'm four foot eleven. So we weren't going to miss each other. But he said to me, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Newsread? I said, oh, goodness me. No, do I heck want to do newsreading? He said, what do you want to do? I said, I've, I've no idea. So within about a few days, he rang me up and said, go to Wigan and Warrington. And I want you to talk about, you know, rugby and the pies and this, that and the other. I said, oh, my God. Right. then." (laughs) And I went off to do it and it was taken so well. Everybody seemed to like me. And so I had a show within several months, a Sunday morning show, Susie on a Sunday. From there, it well, my world just completely changed. I just couldn't understand it, because when I first put myself in front of a microphone to talk in a radio situation, I thought, well, this is the weirdest thing in the world. There's no feedback. So what the heck am I doing sitting here looking at this mic? It's just ridiculous. <laughs> oh, and then dear. one day, it just clicked. I thought, oh, I like it. It's so intimate. I'm loving it. And then one day, Colin Walters rang up and said, there's thousands of people listening to you. Well, oh my God. <laughs> that is brilliant,
0: Susie. I think we talked about maybe doing three podcasts. I think it's going to have to be four because... <laughs> oh, I'm sorry.
1: Have I gone on too No, much?
0: it's been absolutely brilliant. But I think the Piccadilly Radio and what led on from there is another one, isn't it? And then the Kirsty and then what's happened after Kirsty. So I think we're going to wind it down today. Okay. And... <laughs> I was just getting going then. Why are you... <laughs>
1: oh dear can we do another one can we arrange another one I'd love to it's just so strange for me because of course I haven't talked about these things you know for a long time and I started to do some little speeches people kept asking me to do some little speeches and go out and talk about it and of course I was just getting to do a few and then lockdown happened and so everything was cancelled so been nice to talk sir. it's been strange interviewing you knowing (laughs) that you were so famous
0: you on the television, I'm actually interviewing you, but it's so easy because all I have to do is listen to the stories. And even though I know you very well, there's lots of things I didn't know. So it's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you oh. so much oh, for. Oh, you're very,
1: very welcome. I've loved it. I've loved being part of your little black book. Oh, well, it's not finished yet. So
0: <laughs> everyone will be looking forward to part two. We'll arrange it as soon as possible. Oh, Thank well, you I so much. Oh,
1: you're Thank very, you. very welcome. Take care. Bye.